Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here today at First Christian Church. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is about this far through the Bible. It's the first uh, book in the New Testament. We're going to be reading from chapter 1. I want to thank you for being with us today. I know it's cold, cold outside. Wow. Can we just say we've done winter at this point and, and start spring? I've got bad news for you in that winter doesn't actually start officially till Wednesday. Ooh, what's with that? Yeah, sh- stop that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> as you leave today, uh, there will be people who help you in the parking lot if you need to get your, have somebody drive your car up for you. You'll be glad to do that. One of the things I want to tell you about is that Lynn and Dory, because they're our home, or they, they live in, their home is really in Nairobi these days, but they came from our congregation, worked for mis- as missionaries on our behalf. They've been in Kenya for 14 years now. They're home for just a couple of weeks this uh, season to see their new grandbaby, so they came to see, the, see her. So um, if you'd like to chat with them and have a chance to meet with them, because they won't be able to visit with everybody like they normally would, they'll be in the cafe on, mon- on Tuesday morning, all morning long. So if you'd like to have a chance to talk with them, I'd invite you to do that, all right? And for guests, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team here, and um, I counted a privilege. Seriously, I counted a privilege that um, I get to spend some time with you in Scripture today. And we're looking forward to see what God will teach us. As, um, as we start, perhaps something that you're unaware of, and, th- and that is um, because of the nature of our church and some of the things that we're involved in, uh, I travel on behalf of the church now and then, probably once a quarter or so. I'm, it requires that I get on a plane and go somewhere. And uh, between that and with family living in British Columbia, I'm on, on a plane, you know, and four, five, six times a year, and uh, I like to fly. I, I like to usually get the aisle seat just because it feels a little more roomy, but on the times that you're assigned, if you will, to the window seat, I do like looking out the window too. When, when you're up in the air, it's one thing, but on the other hand, when you're, um, when you're I like the takeoffs and the landings because then you get to see the buildings and you get to see, and you get sort of an orientation to the city that you're flying into. It's really good stuff. You look at the landmarks and he always wondered what the city's going to be like. Like, for example, look at this photo of um, what one fellow put up uh, on the flight path as you're about to tr- fly into Mitchell International Airport. He says, welcome to Cleveland. It's lovely. You go, okay, how cool is that? And you go, except if you're on the plane, it's quite problematic because Pitt Mitchell International Airport, where you're flying into, is in Milwaukee. <laughs> so you're going, I don't get it. He put it there as a joke. Some of you are not laughing. Imagine what it's like to be a passenger on the plane. You think you're about to land in Milwaukee and you fly over there and on the way to the Milwaukee airport you read, welcome to Cleveland. What's with that? Here's what happened. 1978, it's been there since 1978. A fellow named Mark, uh, Mark Gubin owns the building. One of his employees said, hey, you know that all the planes coming into the airport uh, into Milwaukee fly right over us. We should put up welcome, a welcome sign on the roof. And he did. Welcome to Cleveland. <laughs> Cleveland is seven hours away by car. So here's what happens. As you can imagine, people come, they're flying in, they see that sign. And what would be your response? Pretty well panic. Like, can I get off this plane right now and go the other direction? I thought I was going to Milwaukee and here is 
Cleveland in front of me, but actually it is. Milwaukee is just he's messing with you. It messes with a lot of people, so much so that the city of Milwaukee passed an ordinance saying that nobody else is allowed to do that, but because he had it up there before they passed that ordinance, he's grandfathered in. And as long as he doesn't change the nature of the sign, he can keep it there. So every spring he's out there painting those white le- painting over those white letters and just messing with people's heads. I think it's hilarious. I love it. I love stuff like this. When it's not me, the, this, the, the, uh, the object of the prank. And the other thing is that um, because there's been so much panic on the planes over the years, 1978, we're coming up almost 40 years now, that when they're on a plane to Milwaukee and they're doing, this is how you do the seat belt and this is the stuff that comes out of the, you know, and look at the placard and see where the exits are. They say, if you're not listening, you won't hear it, but they will tell you, we're on a plane, we're on a flight to Milwaukee, don't worry about the welcome to Cleveland sign. It's gonna, you're gonna see it. We know it's there. Yes, you're on the plane to Milwaukee. And I, (laughs) but it brings to mind a question. What if you think you're headed to one direction you headed one way, one destination, but you do end up somewhere else. You've heard about the planes that land at the wrong airport occasionally, don't you? Usually those pilots are in trouble. Yeah, do you think? <laughs> do you think? Okay. But nonetheless, how do you manage your mindset if you say, I'm going here, but you end up there? In other words, if you have one plan and another comes along, how do you manage landing in Cleveland when you thought you were going to be in Milwaukee? That's what happened to this guy we're about to read about today in Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. It's about the story of Jesus and his stepfather, Joseph. This is how the birth of Jesus the, Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, I want you to pay attention. This is an engaged couple, and you're reading language about uh, divorce and husband and everything. I'll come back to that yet later on this morning, okay, how, in that culture, how that works. But after he considered this, an angel of the, of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What do you mean? My, my fiancé is pregnant from somebody else? What's with that? She'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We're going to come back to that yet in the service today about how the coming of Jesus Christ into our world is God with us. Emmanuel. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But she didn't consummate, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, in fairness, folks, we, we don't know a lot about this young couple. We don't know a lot about the characters in the story. We, based on cultural, um, historical understandings, we, we, we have some sense of maybe what it was like. We know, for example, that perhaps Mary was somewhere between the age of 14 and 25. We go, 14-year-olds got married? Yes, in those days, they did. Remember, life expectancy wasn't much beyond 40, if, if at all. Most people would die younger, so they got married younger. Uh, Joseph, the fiancé, would have been a little bit older. He could have been as old, uh, perhaps about 18 would be marrying age. He might have been old as 30. 
well, that's a huge age differential. Again, 30 to 14 between a husband and wife, but those sort of things were common in that day. It would have been an arranged marriage. We would suspect that the parents had got together and said, our son is going to marry your daughter. And you read this language about divorce and husband and everything. What's with that? That's, we, 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 they're not married yet. Well, in that culture, once those families came together, and said that this is how our marriage is, this wedding is going to take place and how this marriage is going to be. It was a legal binding agreement that had the same weight as marriage. So that's when the language of husband comes in, even though they're not married yet. That's why he can, the word language divorce comes in before they're married. We would say, well, the two fiancés broke it off, right? And it would be a, a much easier breaking off than it would be in this culture. There would have had to be legal understandings of how the marriage was not going to take place. We know that much. We wonder about, uh, biblical scholars wonder about how, Mary, about how Joseph learned of Mary's pregnancy. I suppose she had to tell him, right? Can you imagine that conversation? Uh, a difficult moment. Joseph, I've got to tell you something that's going to be hard. And you probably won't believe it. Did he believe her when she said, this baby is God's son. I've been faithful and true to you. I, I haven't been messing around. It really is God's son. Do you think he would have believed her? Joseph had the right in that culture to frankly publicly shame her, to say, she's pregnant, it's not my baby, I'm out of here. But he was at least going to be kind. He planned to just end the marriage plans officially and legally, but quietly. But then he changed his mind. There's a whole series of events that take place, and he changes his plan that instead of landing in, in Cleveland, he is going to land in Milwaukee. Or instead of landing in Milwaukee, he is going to land in Cleveland. It's going this way, but I'm going to go that way. How do you respond when God changes your plans? How's that go? Are you, are you a willing participant or do you complain the whole way along? How should you respond? I want to tell you a story that I, I debated long and hard for a couple of days, actually, to whether or not I should tell you this story, because it's a story about me, and I don't want to come off as a hero. Uh, and, and so I, I tell this story with some concern that you don't read too much into it, but more so hear the struggle that was involved, not, the, not necessarily just the end result. Many of you know that um, prior to me stepping into pastoral ministry, Leslie and I had what could be termed a very successful musical career. We were involved in a, and traveled with a group that literally did, we did four world tours. Um, starting in, saw most of the, toured in most of the states within the United States, many of the provinces in Canada. Then we would, once a year, um, be gone overseas for about 10 months at a time. We'd start in Great Britain and invariably work our way across all of Western Europe into Eastern Europe. One time we went over all the way as far as Yerevan and Armenia, right up against the Iranian border. We saw much of Africa. It was six nights on, and then one night off every week. And um, we were paid fairly well. We had ver virtually no expenses. Every place we went, they provided hospitality and a place to live or a hotel or a home to stay in. And what we were paid was ours to use. The only thing we paid for was medical insurance, as I recall. And so when we were in a town or a city, whatever the case may be, and we had the night off, we, would, we had the resources to do whatever the tourists did. And, and we saw the world, literally saw at least that portion of the world. And um, the, the tour finished basically in Eastern Europe in, in the uh, spring of 1985. And we came back to the United States. 
with an understanding that we would have six months off or so to do whatever we wanted and we were to meet the group again in Poland and take on the next leg of the tour. And um, so what do you do? We had the resources, we didn't need a job, but you don't want to just sit around for six months, if you will. And the little church, 40 people that Leslie and I had attended when we were students in Tulsa asked if I would play the piano each week. Well, that seemed a reasonable deal. Leslie would lead, and we'd, do, we'd be the musicians for six months. And by the way, by the way, Wayne, we don't have a pastor. Would you fill in at the pulpit? What do you mean? I'm not a preacher. I play the piano. I play trombone. I lead music. That's what I do. And that's what we're going to be doing in six months. Well, can't you tell us just a few road stories? Tell us something that you had learned when you were on the road. Well, I could do that for a couple weeks. Well, a couple weeks turned into a couple months, into six months. We did it for six months. And I, to this day, have no idea what I told those people in that six months. <laughs> I don't know if I helped any of them get closer to Jesus or not. I couldn't tell you at all. But I do know this, that at the end of six months, we were done. You know, I, I had no sense of pastoral ministry as a career. We were musicians, and we were doing well in music. And uh, played with some of the best musicians around the world. Performed in some of the finest auditoriums that, you, that anybody would want to perform in. It was a great life. And um, the end of six months, we're ten days or so out from when we're going to come to the end of that period, and I was in an elders meeting. Now, they invited me to go to the elders meetings every month because I was the guy in the pulpit, and I'm, what did I know? I mean, I, I knew nothing about pastoral ministry, and yet they'd say, you should, well, you're the guy kind of filling the pulpit. You should come, so I'd go to the elders meetings, and it was a Monday night after really, I think I had one more weekend in the pulpit planned, and uh, the elders were there, and they were praying and talking about what were they going to do when Wayne and Leslie leave in a couple of weeks from now. And uh, prayer t took place. And I remember I was sitting on one side of the table, and Charlie Harris was sitting over there. Now, you've probably been in meetings where a Charlie Harris shows up. Charlie's the guy who knows everybody and who has been involved in the life of the organization or the, or the church, whatever the case may be, for decades. He'd been the treasurer for decades, but in meetings, he never said a word dead quiet the whole time. And you've probably been in those meetings where there's somebody who never says a word, and yet their presence is really important. And so we, we, the prayer closed, and we're about to leave, and Charlie says, I need to interrupt. Mr. Harris, he was 79, 82, somewhere in that age, had grown up in that church as an infant. He knew that congregation backwards and forwards. And he says, when Charlie says, I need to say something, everybody stops, because he never talked otherwise. And he stood up and he said, I have a word from God. What do you mean? Charles has a word from God? We've been in prayer and now this man who never says a word says that he's got something from God to tell us. You're going to listen, right? And he stood up. I remember he pointed across the table at me. He said, Wayne Kent, you shouldn't go back to Poland. You shouldn't go back on the road. God's calling you to be the pastor of this church. I thought I was on my way to Milwaukee and Cleveland just suddenly showed up in the picture. <laughs> and he knew, you know what? I knew immediately he was right. We never did go back on the road. Leslie did, years later, when she's traveled with Prison Fellowship and Chuck Colson for years, but I never did go back on the road. I took on that role and I said, okay, if I'm gonna do this, I better go to seminary. And off I went to seminary, and we served that church for almost nine years before we moved here on January 1 of 1994. Why am I telling you that story? Because here's what, I, here's what I learned then, and I think I'll probably have to learn it again this week, 
with some of the decisions that I face or the decisions you face, that a follower of Jesus always allows God's best plan to become his or her plan. And it's either going to happen with you kicking and screaming or saying no or in full acquiescence, which is it going to be? I'm not suggesting it's easy by any means. And by the, let me be careful. I'm not suggesting that God's plan for all means vocational ministry. It did for me. And as I look back at that, do I miss music? Yeah, I miss music. But I wouldn't trade it at all for the role I get to have in your life, the life of this community, and for the fact that I know I'm doing what God called me to do. I have a very high view of vocational ministry. And I think that some of our, that our youngest, that, pardon me, that our brightest and best young people need to consider vocational ministry. I like that idea, but that's not the focal point of today's message. I would say this, if you're young and you haven't decided on a vocation yet, you need to give some serious thought to ministry because you'll never have a higher calling. I absolutely believe that. But that's not the focal point of my message. I understand that for my life, that's how God's best plan came into play and it met a change of not landing in Milwaukee but actually landing in Cleveland. Or frankly, not landing in Warsaw but landing in Tulsa. But I like how it worked out in Joseph's life. Did you see what happened? You see how it played out? Look at verse 19. He's got one thing in mind, but then you read in verse 20, after he had considered this. What's fascinating, and I'll tell you, I've been, I've been thinking about this message and working on it. I had notes for going back weeks of how this was going to play out this week. But it was only in the last few days that I noticed this. A fascinating word, after. It was after considering everything. And after he changed his mind, if you will that the angel showed up, or at least opened his mind to new possibilities because scripture says he had in mind to quietly divorce his fiancée. He had in mind just quietly say, I'm not doing this. I'm out of here. It's someone else's baby. But after he considered all that and after he worked through the struggles, then what happens? The angel showed up. It wasn't that he had one thing in mind and then the angel showed up and then he changed. No, notice he was considering it all along. And maybe he came to the place that said, maybe calling off the engagement is not a good thing at all. And then the angel appeared. You know, if you're like me, you say, well, I'm, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do this, and if an angel comes along or some supernatural event comes along, yeah, then I'll change course. But what would it be like if we said, this is the goal I have in mind, but regardless, I'm always open to seeing where God might lead, and it doesn't always require a supernatural event. Perhaps a better approach is that, well, a Joseph approach. I'll consider all the possibilities and ask God to direct me to the right one. I mean, think about Joseph. He, there had to be some moments of pure, on the first part, anger, sense of betrayal, if you will, and even confusion. After all, he'd say, it's absurd. Mary's having a baby and she says it's God's son. How ridiculous. That's never happened to anyone. Oh, I know it says in our ancient scriptures that it's going to happen to a young woman, but surely it's not going to be Mary, and surely that baby isn't God's son, and surely that baby isn't going to be the Messiah. I am the guy, in the, I'm the ordinary carpenter guy. It doesn't happen to ordinary guys like me. Who ever heard of such a thing? It's very confusing. What's your response to confusion in the middle of questions? I'd like to propose a new idea for you today. When you've got questions about this, that, and the other, that confusion can be a good thing, if we could relabel it, if you will. 
We, we fight against confusion, but what if we embrace the struggle and debate? See, if your mind is, op- is made up and not open to change, then what if the mind made up is in the wrong position? Perhaps, friends, confusion can be a sign of growth. It could be, if you will, a holy discontent authored by God himself to say, I want, to introduce, I, I want this person to rethink the possibilities. And those, well, you could rethink how you experience confusion. Could it be a holy discontent that confusion would be a sign of growth? It can be an indication of the status quo is about to change that new ideas and new thinking and new challenges and new ways are about to overtake the old ways. And that confusion isn't just confusion, but instead it's a discontent with the present situation. Because if you're content, you won't consider new possibilities, will you? It's only when the status quo gets shifted a little bit that you go, okay, what other options are there? Is it possible God could be working in the midst of that holy discontent, if confusion, if you want to call it that? I mean, that's what Joseph experienced, isn't it? And then after he says, okay, what are my other options? The angel shows up in the midst of that confusion, and suddenly this confused young man was given one of the most important roles in all of human history. He got to, he was asked to, and he agreed to raise the Son of God, the Savior of the world. When Joseph, the young carpenter, showed that little boy how how to hold a hammer, those same small hands later on reached out and touched and healed people. When Joseph talked to his stepson, adolescent, the 13-year-old named Jesus, and he had to talk to Jesus about the challenges of manhood, You know what he could do? He could then point to his own courage and allowing. He said, I I know it's hard to be a person of courage, but let me tell you, I was willing to take on God's plan for my life. I took the courage. And young Jesus, you're going to have to learn of the source of that same courage because you're going to need it in order to follow God's plan for you all the way to death on a cross. Now, if you're here today and you're never confused, then I'd say praise the Lord. You need to put up your hand because you're the only person. If you're not confused today, I want to tell you there will be times in the future when you may be. But if you are here today and you are confused about this, that, or the other, which is probably all of us, perhaps you wonder about this matter or that matter, what choice you should seriously seriously choose given the questions that are before you, can I suggest to you that be like Joseph? In the midst of the debate, in the midst of the questions, God can show up. God showed up in the midst of Joseph's questions, and the heavenly messenger comes along. You got questions? Great. Great, because the status quo is not going to stay where it is. Expect the messenger from heaven to bring and give direction because of those questions. Expect the work of the Holy Spirit to come to you in a very, very important and powerful way. And in the midst of that, then, look at Joseph's response to the message arriving from heaven. Look at his response to this angelic message. What did he have? He had this tremendous courage. He, he risked a lot. He risked the um, gossip and the pointing fingers of the village of Nazareth. You know that. You probably could imagine what that was like. See those kids over there? Oh, I know they're married now. Oh, as well. But you're new to town. Can I just tell you? The amount of time between their marriage, the wedding day, and the birth of their first baby, it wasn't quiet. 
regular, if you know what I mean. Didn't they say that? Don't you think he took it on the chin? On God's behalf. When people would point at him and say, well, he wasn't all, he's not all that pure, let me tell you about it. His purity, his integrity was questioned. That guy, less than appropriate, I want you to know. That's what people said. He risked that. He risked a strike to his own ego, saying, I'll raise a stepson who is, by the way, the most important human being ever born, and I wonder if I'm going to mess it up. Don't you think that was scary? You know, friends, choosing God's plan requires great courage. It takes courage to change your mind and move in a direction that you hadn't planned. It takes courage to land in Cleveland when you thought you were going to be in Milwaukee. And it's courage that says, God's plan means that I have to see what others don't see. Those around Joseph saw a young man in a marriage where they put the cart before the horse is what they thought. They saw a young man trapped in a marriage that he might have otherwise foregone. Why did Joseph do this? You know, he could have got out of that. And they saw a young couple holding on to some strange, incredible, stupid belief. Craziness. That God had brought them together and that baby that she's carrying is God's son. Have you ever heard of such nonsense in your life? That's what others saw. But what did Joseph see? Joseph saw God's plan. Joseph, catch this, by seeing God's plan, he got to hold the hand of a little toddler and teach the Son of God how to walk. Joseph saw the long-term results of this baby's life. He saw that people could be saved from their sins. He saw what others couldn't. We read already, you, you had Lacey read for us from Romans chapter 1, the results of what Joseph saw. Can, can I just remind you again what Romans 1 says? It says that, this little baby was God's son, who as for his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God, in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who he saw. And it's through Jesus that we have received grace. That's what Joseph saw. Because he listened, because he was willing to stay, I'll take on the new plan, people were saved and people are saved. Their sins have been forgiven and grace has been extended to all. You are sitting where you are today if you're a follower of Jesus Christ because he was willing to say, I thought I was going to Milwaukee, but now I'm in Cleveland instead, and it's okay. It's what God had in mind. He had courage to see past the immediate image of trouble, the shame of a baby that was conceived out of wedlock, and all of that brought grace to everyone. Universal grace became to all of us because Joseph and courage agreed to God's plan and said, I'll, I'll look for what others can't see. What, what, how are you doing with that? What, what God promptings are in you today? The questions that you've been asking, you go, well, I shouldn't even think those questions. Could I suggest, friends, that you could be Joseph today? And those could be God promptings. They could be the wor- those questions could be the work of the Holy Spirit. It could be some holy discontent growing in you. Is there a job change that might be better that God's got in mind? Is there a change in a relationship, a bad relationship you need to end, or a great relationship you need to pour some energy into? 
Is God calling you to new behavior, to a new attitude, to a new understanding of generosity, to a new understanding of what you should do with your spare time? I don't know. However you answer that, Joseph took actions based on this new understanding, this new paradigm that he had. We read that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife. There are people here today in the room, you know that those questions are from God. Oh, you haven't had an angel involved. But the confusion and the holy discontent of the questions and debates within yourself have caused you to grow and develop and to consider new life approaches, and yet you say, oh, I can't do it. I don't want to be Joseph in this situation. Joseph displayed great faith and courage in God's plan by taking actions that others would forego. And choosing God's plan involves taking actions that others would forego. Sometimes somebody's got to step up to the plate. Sometimes somebody's got to say, I'll be the one. Can you do that? Can you do that? Can you take your place in history? Because God's at work within you. Let me see if I could explain it to you from a story within our own nation's history. Many of you will recall that some 10 years or so ago, I received a doctoral degree from Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston, Massachusetts. The studies are quite a lot of work. It took me many years to get it done. But part of the work, what I had to do was, uh, for three summers in a row, I had to spend anywhere from 14 to 18 days in Boston. And the church graciously gave me that time each June for those three years to go to Boston. And the classes would start 8, 9 o'clock in the morning on a Monday, go to 5 o'clock on a Friday. It didn't make sense to try and fly back to, the, to Illinois and then be back there again in Boston by Monday morning. So for those three uh, years, I spent at least one weekend a year and a summer in Boston with nothing to do per se. Lots of studying, but I had free time, no classes. And so each year, you know what I would do? I'd go downtown Boston and I would take a look at all the revolutionary sites where our nation was born. And you can do it this way. You can go right downtown to Boston and you can start in Harvard Square and right off Harvard Square there is a red brick in the sidewalk. And there's another brick right after that, another brick right after that. And if you follow those bricks that go for six to eight miles, depending which direction you go, you will go past every major site within the Revolutionary War. And I would do it every year. Walk that red line and see all the sites. And you'll see things like you go, did you know you go past Mother Goose's gravesite? There really was a Mother Goose. You didn't know that, but she's right there, right there in Boston. Mother Goose, and that, that, that fairy tale or that rhyme is based on her life. And it will take you past her gravesite. It will also take you right to the front door of Paul Revere's house. Do you know him? Paul Revere, what do you know about Paul Revere? You know he was a silversmith, he was a dentist. And what did Paul Revere do? He rode and warned the British, that, warned that the British were coming, right? And there's a very famous poem called Paul Revere's Ride that kind of gives the story of how he rode about 20 miles and to told the American militiamen to rise up because the British are coming, those terrible, nasty British people were coming. Be careful, be careful, be careful, but nonetheless. They were coming, and so he went and did that, and um, we know that as part of our American history, but can I tell you something? Part of our American history in that regard is that we listen to the poem, and there are some historical inaccuracies in the poem. For example, Paul Revere, when he made his famous ride, wasn't by himself. Did you know that? There were actually three guys who made the ride. Paul Revere, another guy by the name of William Dawes, and a third guy by the name of Samuel Prescott. It was a 20-mile ride. They were all going to leave Boston, go around and raise up the militia and say, you need to be ready, the British are coming. And the truth of the matter is, Paul Revere never finished the ride. <laughs> 
Samuel Prescott got on his horse with the, three, with the other two guys and didn't go far before he fell off. They left him in the dust. Revere carried on with the ride along with, with Dawes, and he got, Paul Revere got captured by the British. It was actually William Dawes that made the full 20-mile ride. Revere gets all the, all the credit, probably because he was the most well-known well name at the time. But nonetheless, how all that came about is that on April 18, 1775, more than a year before the Declaration of Independence was made public, that ride took place. But the war didn't stop or end based on that one ride, did it? There were many times when people had to go out, someone had to go out and let the militia know the British are coming to our area of the country. For example, in April of 1777, two years later, some months after the Declaration of Independence had been made, the British came to the city of Danbury in Connecticut and literally wiped it out. They burned it to the ground. 30 miles away, reports of the attack reached Dutchess County, New York. And it would be expected that the British are going to move through Connecticut, make their way to New York, and the New York militiamen would be ready to take on the British. However, it was April. And the problem was that while they had been together for some time throughout the winter, it was April and all those militiamen had gone back to their homes because it was time to plant crops. And they, were, they weren't around. So somebody was going to have to ride around, like Paul Revere did, and get everybody together. Some 500 militiamen ready to take on the British. It was pouring, pouring rain. Springtime. The responsibility of gathering the militia fell to a man by the name of Colonel Henry Ludington. Henry Ludington is his name. But he, for some reason or other, wasn't able to do it. And they looked around who could take on this midnight rain in the pouring rain. This midnight ride, pardon me, in the pouring rain. Nobody stepped forward. Until Ludington's 16-year-old daughter, Sybil, said, I'll do it. And Sybil, Ludington, volunteered. Her father agreed, and she went throughout the county gathering the American Revolutionary Militia. She knew the area and where members of the militia lived. She rode her horse from her father's farm. First she headed south, then she went west, then when she went north, and when she finally went back to the farm. And all told, she didn't ride 20 miles like Paul Revere and his team did. She actually rode 40 miles in one night. In those 40 miles, she raised 500 militiamen up. Traveling down dirt roads with the rain pouring down on her, soaked to the skin, nothing to protect her but a stick. Here's a photo of her sculpture that you can find in New York today. When you see that thing raised up above her head, it's not a rifle, it's not a sword. It is simply a stick. There were many British loyalists in the area who she had to get around. And there were also a group of people known as Skinners, S-K-I-N-N-E-R-S. Skinners who were loyal to neither the um, British nor the Americans. They were frankly robbers. And part, one of the reports about what she did was she used her stick, it says, to pound on a Skinner who accosted her. I love that. Took my stick and I'm going to pound on you if you accost me. I like it. In total, she gathered nearly 500 troops to her cause. And they took on the British because of a young woman's courage. Hmm. I like that the hero of April 1777 was a teenager. And I really like the fact that the hero of April 1777 was a teenage girl. It goes against our stereotypes. It goes against us. Well, I, we say, well, I'm not that type of person who can step up to the plate. I'm not the kind of person who can step into new options. No, you may not be a 35-year-old man in the prime of life. I get that. But could you imagine taking on all that God's got in front of you because 
A young teenage girl at the age of 16 could do that? I bet you can. I like that because she took on the task of 1777, a 16-year-old girl did that. And the result was that a nation's birth was forwarded and moved forward. I like that the hero of Matthew 1 was a young man, maybe as young as a teenager, we don't know, but definitely a young man. And I look, like the fact that that hero took on God's plan. Joseph did it. And the result was not just that a nation was born, but a son of God was born. The son of God was born. And the kingdom of God was advanced all the way to you and me today. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, there are men and women, young people in this room today who have got some questions about this, that, or the other. They're working through, uh, what, what should I do about this, and how should I handle this? And at times, God, we feel guilty for having questions. I thank you, Lord, that it's... Uh, we, can, we can be people who, if you will, embrace the questions and see it as some holy discontent and ask where you are asking us to change and to, if you will land in Cleveland rather than Milwaukee or uh, step into a relationship we'd rather not be part of step away from a relationship we don't want to give up God you're you through your Holy Spirit call us to always never settle for the status quo you are a change agent and you call us to be people of change as well Lord, if there's someone here today who has yet to make the, the, the most important change of going from, well, non-Christian to Christian, from non-believer to believer, from apart from you to walking with you through grace in Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that you would call that person, regardless of his or her age, call that person into a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, for all of us, help us to walk with you this week open to all kinds of new possibilities of how you want to work in us and through us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.